This is Shauna Sylvester, everyone. Shauna was born in Nelson, just for all the locals who are listening and grew up in Vancouver. She is a professor of professional practice and the executive director of Simon Fraser University Center for Dialogue at the WASP Center. She's an award-winning social entrepreneur, facilitator, and commentator. She was co-founder of a whole bunch of stuff, and she ran for mayor in 2018. And that's all I'm going to say about that, if that's all right. That's Shauna. more than enough. More than <laughs> enough. <laughs> so I want to... you, Kevin. You too. Do you know when our fathers met? They started a company called Blackline Paving together. Yeah. Oh, and they paved all the roads in Trail and Nelson and in the Kootenays. But I don't know when they met. I bet my mom, who went to Penn High, knew yeah. their dad. And that's probably how they met was through through that connection. Anyway, I'm from Nelson originally. I only know Trail to visit it. Um, uh, I always think of Nelson. I'm actually um, fourth or five generations Nelson. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. My great-grandfather came uh, as part of the colonial exercise coming into, I mean, you can imagine, I can only imagine the days, and, and he brought his mother and his wife from Guelph, Ontario, and he was working on the Cattle Valley Railway. And then he was, he, my great-grandfather and my grandfather were all engineers on the Kettle Valley Railway, which is what the Penticton connection is. Okay. Um, and we still have in the family one of the still standing section houses of the Kettle Valley up above Shoot Lake. But yes. Wow. That's, cool. That's really cool. Um, um, let's get into uh, some stuff here. I want to know what a professor of professional practice is. Uh, it's a good question. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing that Simon Fraser has, and they, they recognize um, professional experience, practice. So I, 30 years of practice, they decided that that, that kind of was the equivalent of a, a, of a near PhD and uh, named me a professor of professional practice in the, in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And then at the same time, um, asked me to take on the leadership of the Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue, which is right on Seymour in Hastings. Um, so t- w- w- when you are a professor of professional practice, what do you actually teach? I teach. So I teach in what's called the semester in dialogue. And that is one of the most intensive teaching experiences you can have because it's, for example, went online in May, in June, just after covid uh, we all went online and I taught nine to five, five days a week for seven weeks on democracy, democracy, the next frontier. And I had students, 20 students. And in that time, you have the Hong Kong riots going on. You have the murder of George Floyd, all of this in real time and teaching about democracy. So that's one of the courses I've teach, I've taught and designed with um, another colleague. And, and then another one was on urban energy systems. So really looking at... Um, energy in the urban environment and what that looks like. So a similar nine to five, five days a week for seven weeks. It's intense. Cool. So, and, and you're teaching to students, right? You're not teaching to professionals. I do both. Um, I do in my regular job. Uh, I am facilitating a lot of different kinds of initiatives. So any given week I could be looking at, um, climate. I could be looking at housing in Burnaby. I I facilitated the mayor's task force in affordable housing in Burnaby. Um, That just has just 
gone through an evaluation of the first year of its work. Um, I uh, facilitate on opioid. I could be looking at mental health, addictions. I could be looking at housing in Vancouver, any number of issues at any given time. So those are more facilitating. Sometimes I'll go into training and supporting people on how to facilitate, how to host difficult conversations, how to have dialogues. So that's the kind of work that I do. I didn't actually realize what the Center for Dialogue was and what people did. And I, I just find it amazing. I just think that it's kind of great that um, our society puts money, resources towards that kind of thinking and learning and teaching. And I, I was really quite impressed by a lot of stuff because I didn't know that when you were running for mayor. Well, it's, the, it's interesting. It's the first center for dialogue in a university in the English speaking world. So the first kind of its type. And it was, remember the Citizens Assembly on Electoral Reform? Citizens Assemblies are now going on around the world. Well, that was created at the Center for Dialogue. That was, yeah, that was the first pilot. That was the first activity we did. Um, But the center, the idea of the center is that um, a lot of the decisions we make are based on values. They're based on uh, trying to look at trade-offs that we're going to make together as a community. And we really don't create the spaces for those conversations in regular in our regular day-to-day lives. And so the center really has developed, um, I think some of the best thinking, some of the best knowledge, some of the best practices and how to do that. And how do you have a really difficult conversation about structural racism? How do you have a really difficult conversation about um, issues related to sexual violence or issues related to the downtown east side and the, you know, the opioid poisoning crisis that we've had. How do you have those conversations? How do you set the table? How do you facilitate it so that you can have a diversity of opinions come into a room and not scream at each other? Boy, oh boy. As I listen to this, I'm thinking, I guess I'm hoping your phone must be just ringing off the hook with people who want direction and help and opinion on these things. You just listed about 10 things in a row they're just smoking hot topics that cannot seem to be discussed rationally by anybody. So do you get asked a lot? I hope so. We do. We do, actually. Good. And it was really interesting because I remember the day, March 16th, when COVID, when the university announced that they were going to be going online. And I brought everybody together at the center because we're a center for dialogue. You know, how are you going to cope in an <laughs> online world? Yeah. And my background, I have a lot of background in working in conflict zones in Afghanistan, Cambodia, places where, you know, you're really dealing with conflict. So I feel comfortable with ambiguity. I feel comfortable in these situations where you don't know what's going to happen next. So I, I brought everybody together and I said, okay, let's come up with one goal that is going to govern what we do in this space. And they said, well, whatever we do has to lead to a more just democratic and resilient future. So that was the overarching goal. And I said, okay, so what is core to who we are at the Center for Dialogue that we cannot compromise? Well, what's core to us is that we work in the space of dialogue. So that's core. We have a commitment to racial equity and justice. Like we have a commitment to hearing different voices, creating spaces where different voices feel that they can bring their issues to the table. 
And we have a commitment to finding solutions. So we made those our kind of minimum specifications. And then I said to everybody, you don't have to check in, go and innovate, go show up into community in whatever way you can, according to this framework. And it was incredible. In the first week, the first week, my colleagues recognized that people didn't even know what to do. Do you get in your car? Can you cycle? Can you go for a walk? Can you get on a bus? No idea. So we created a website that helped people navigate transportation in Metro Vancouver. Then we had a bunch of our young people, students, come up and said, you know, we don't have a clue. We don't know if we're supposed to be going to school. We don't know anything. So we created another website called www.wegotchu, W-E-G-O-T-C-H-U. And that was just to help young people figure out and navigate these moments. It started to get picked up across the country. And then we had, this was all happening in like real time. And then they created distance, not disengaged an online dialogue series. We created jobs for a hundred and no 1,100 people through pivot 2020, because we knew that so many young people had no jobs and no prospects for jobs. Uh, because of what was happening in COVID, it was amazing. And so all of this, so are people calling us? We've never been busier. Yeah. Yeah. So we've never been busier, but there's a lot. I don't want to pretend that this is easy. It's not easy. We are a highly polarized society and it's getting worse. Yeah. becoming more divisive, more fragmented. And uh, we could spend all of our time talking about oh, how to make that better, but... <laughs> Even assuming there was willingness, there's a lack of skill. And that's why I asked about whether you're getting called. Anybody who has willingness, probably. Well, it was really interesting. And this is kind of a hats off to Mayor Mike Hurley, who's in um, Burnaby and the council there. I got a call um, from him. This was after the last civic election and said, hey, you know, I ran on trying to deal with housing in Burnaby. And I don't know if you watched, but Burnaby had gone through one of the biggest dislocations of people in our history in any municipality. Just yeah, we live, we live, we live quite close to that neighborhood, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yes, and and it wasn't ju- it wasn't just Metro. It was Low Heat. It was Brentwood. So there's just massive rent evictions and and or evictions, and and I thought, huh, okay, here's a new mayor. <laughs> divergent council, um, you know, uh, staff that had worked with another mayor for many, many years. And I thought, wow, this is, this is going to be a tough one to figure out how do you get beyond the polarization there, but to the credit. So I said to the mayor, you know, you don't just have us, you don't have an issue of just bringing stakeholders together. You have a whole narrative with the citizens at Burnaby you've got to deal with. So you need to talk to them. (laughs) And to his credit, and to the credit of that council, they said yes. And they invested in a whole process. I spent six months with a highly divisive, so imagine developers, ACORN and anti-poverty activists, people with lived experience who've been evicted four and five times, labor unions, the business sector, seniors, the co-op sector, all around the table for six months. <laughs> Really, all I can imagine is a lot of screaming and yelling, honestly. <laughs> just, but you know, if you prepare a dialogue well, that isn't what happens. What happens is if you set that table, it's like asking people to come to your dinner table. And if you've really thought about it and you're really thinking about the people and you prepared for them, 
it rarely turns into a screaming and yelling match. There might be some good debates and discussion. There might be some, but you put the time and energy into that. And I have to say the city of Burnaby staff just committed as anything to make sure that the people had the information they needed to make good decisions. And they did, they came to a consensus. And if, and they were putting it in play and, and not only did the mayor and council commit to doing it, they brought the whole, the group back again a year later to say how long or 18 months later, how are we doing evaluate our progress? And if all of the recommendations get taken into Burnaby, you're going to have the best housing program of any municipality in this country. And that was the most divided community on housing wow. four years ago, three years ago. I so like it's the, possible. I like the follow-up because so often it's, let's do a consultation and then we'll produce a study. That's it. And it'll sit on a shelf. And nobody will even think about it again. Yeah. yeah. You can think of so many places where a conversation is desperately needed and really all you're hearing is statements and promises and complaints and that's it. It just doesn't, well, we had Mumalak on here and that is still the position in Nunavut, right? That's just, yeah, can't get anywhere up there, it seems like. My impression is not much has changed. I- well, how you have conversations, there is actually, I don't want to say there's a science to it. There's certainly an art to it. Um, and we don't and we don't care enough for that that engagement process people go on so there's always a process of raising awareness that this is an issue mm. then there's education like okay what is this an issue and an education can't be just one person's perspective on that issue it has to look and reflect a whole range of different perspectives and then it's the point at which somebody looks at different options in relationship to their own experiences and values and comes to their own decision is the point at which you have really good judgment. And that's where all the trade-offs are. And that's gold because the only people who can tell you what those trade-offs are are citizens themselves. Stakeholders will make interest-based decisions. Citizens will make value-based decisions. And then the moment you can sit around a dinner table and say, this is what I think, then you're at the place of somebody advocating their own position and then you can move to action but this idea that you're going to raise awareness and get to behavioral change you're going to get to action really misses all those steps and consequently doesn't lead anywhere so you get a lot of opinion you get a lot of polarization um but i think i really believe there are ways of getting around it which is one of the reasons i ran for mayor is because i saw some pretty disturbing trends in metro vancouver and I didn't know how to address them except through this kind of process. And we can get into that. I, I, don't, I feel like I'm stepping into where you guys might want to go. Well, but Because I'm a, a kind of a crazy follower of American politics, American media, and sadly, not Canadian. I'm, I'm starting to get better because of COVID, but uh, this whole polarization thing, and that's why when I started to see what the the dialogue center was actually doing, I thought, oh, there is hope for this world or something. But uh, going back to your run for mayor, I have, of course, a lot of um, artists on my social f- media feed. And so I'm getting these things and I'm thinking, right, that's when I sent you the the Christmas picture of your family. And I said, is this you? Because... We hadn't met before that, and I thought, oh, but um, it was just because you're, you're 
progressive. Like you were obviously the most progressive of anybody running. And you actually, if you're both independent with um, Kennedy Stewart, then you actually, you guys really split the center left. I'd like to think he came in and split the left. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I was running first. Anyway, you did very well. So um, tell us... Tell us why why you ran for mayor. I, I mean, obviously, you've just kind of laid it out. But uh, what you were, let's say you became mayor, what, uh, how, how would things have changed? So first, the reason I ran is what I saw is this is, was a really interesting statistic we hadn't seen. I've been studying democracy for years. But we were seeing in Metro Vancouver a shift to people who didn't think democracy was the appropriate form of government going forward. And in, so... That was declining. And those who saw authoritarianism, militarism as better forms of government was on the increase. And this was a really troubling trend. And so I sat down and I thought, you know, we've been working nationally and provincially on on trying to strengthen democracy. And I said, you know, really, you got to trial, like you got to try something, you got to pilot something, do it differently. So I'd been approached to run it already. And I had kind of pushed it off and said no. And then I started to think, well, maybe there's an opportunity to try something different here. And I said, okay, so I started and I did 17 dialogues in people's living rooms. And to get an invitation to come to one of those dialogues, you had to not care about politics or hate politics never have gotten involved in a political party before and never really, maybe not even voted, but never been engaged. And so then I would bring these people around a table and I'd say, okay, um, what's one thing that you like about the city that's working? And give me one to three things that you think aren't working that need to change. And then I would canvas those ideas and I'd figure out what are their priorities. And then I, then I'd start to, you know, focus in on solutions and, and, and get their thoughts and have a conversation with them. I did 17 of them. And my final closing question to each of them is, if I ran, what, was your be- what would be your best advice to me if I ran? So I did 17 of those before I made the decision. And then I made the decision. And then I did another, I think, 18 of them after. And it was really interesting because we went from 4% to 21% in four weeks. And which, and I'm an independent, right? And and I had no money, no money when I started. I thought it. I thought I was going to be running as a equity or a, a yeah equity candidate across different parties. That didn't work out. So we would really no money. So we were trialing all these different things, and almost all my campaign was run by people under the age of 28. It was a really vibrant. It was so much fun. Beginning. It felt like swimming in molasses. By the last four weeks, it was a gas. I rediscovered my debate. I was raised as a debater. I had to let go of my dialogue and get into debating and really enjoyed it. Now, that whole question of um, dividing the left, I was going across trying to go from the center to left. uh, And I had no idea why Kennedy had come into the game because I'm going, well, why are you running? Like, what do you, you know, I know him. My office was six doors down from this. Why are you running? What are you hoping to do? It's a great job. I said, yeah, that's not, that's not a good enough reason. Not a good enough reason. Why are you running? And so my job became very much keeping the policy, keeping putting policy on the table that had come out of this and driving it home and continuing to ask and pressure each of those candidates to stand for something. Because I wasn't accepting any more 
a can like a whole campaign based on, you know, I came with a hundred dollars in my pocket from Nova Scotia and, you know, I played rock and roll somewhere. And that was the end of it. I wanted real policy. <laughs> I wanted to hear what people stood for. And so that became my role in the campaign was really pushing commitments. And I feel good about that. Um, little too close in terms of seeing how that broke down but I felt good about that I've stayed out of because of my role at the center I've stayed out of Vancouver politics since the campaign and really focused on how do I do and deliver real change in Metro Vancouver on issues I care about so working on housing in Burnaby I work on transportation and land use planning with all the transportation players in the, in, in the region. I'm doing a lot of work behind the scenes, supporting our staff on issues. For example, we're working with Dr. Bonnie Henry on the faith communities and the dialogues with the faith communities right now. So there's a lot of things that we're doing behind the scenes. That's really inspiring, I have to tell you. Here's, uh, let me just ask you this question. And somebody asked me this. How can a young person trying to forge a future in Vancouver exist in Vancouver? How, how do you suppose they make it? Well, my daughter uh, moved to North Van because um, she couldn't afford to rent in Vancouver. So uh, it was so funny during the election, both my kids were out of, the, out of uh, Vancouver, couldn't afford to live. So here's where I think, I don't think this is rocket science. I think that there are some solutions here. And there's solutions that have emerged in this region before, but that we, we have not looked at in a long time. So I do actually think the co-op model, I think if we were to become North America's leader in, in co-ops, that that is a viable uh, form of mixed community where people can live in community and they can live with security of tenure for the rest of their life and commit to that community. And it's affordable. We have lost a notion of, of co-ops in, this con- in, in our city. I don't understand. It was great to see there was no question in Burnaby about increasing co-ops in Burnaby, but we've lost that. In Vancouver, we haven't signed any of our leases, and we have to get back to that. So that's one model I think works. Another model I think um, works that we haven't tried here yet is the whole idea of focusing in on creating a housing authority. So let's take artists. Let's create a housing authority for artists. And let's negotiate, um, perhaps through uh, our uh, community amenity agreements, housing for artists. But in order to get into that housing, you have to be a full-time artist under under a certain threshold of income. And you're able to buy in at a much reduced rate. So you have security of home. Um, at an affordable price, and there's ways of making that happen. In the same way that Whistler created employee housing, they have a housing authority for their employees. We could do that for different sectors of our population, very focused. And that whatever benefits, so say, Kevin, you bought into a space that was for artists, and you received a 40% discount on the cost of that space, that when you sold, the only equity increase you would see, you would see an equity increase, but that discount would always in perpetuity be passed on mm-hmm. to artists. Who, what's the pushback to things like co-ops and these spaces you're talking about? I think that we have entered into an idea 
and bought into a narrative that if we just increase supply and just build more housing, we are going to get to affordability. And that isn't the case. Mm -mm. That might be the case if you had a fixed population uh, because, you know, but our market is a global market. And so the more supply we're creating, we just have more people coming in. It's really, they're buying it as a financial instrument. It's an investment. So we're really good at creating financial instruments. We're not good at creating homes. So sort of like when you have... Sorry? Sort of like sort of like when you put in a freeway and you think that that's going to ease things up and all of a sudden there's more traffic than there ever yeah. was. Can't build your way out of congestion, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly the same. So the other thing is we have 25% of the land base in Vancouver absorbing all the density. In a city of our size, we it's almost like we're a rural community with these single family housing I mean, they're not single family zoning anymore, but but most of this city are these, you know, big homes on 33 by 120 lots. You want to do one thing for climate change, increase the density there. That one thing would do so much for addressing GHG emissions. But let's look more generally and who absorbs that density? Which communities absorb that density? So we've created our own little little, in a sense, enclaves of where we're going to have density. And part of the problem is the density we're creating now is it gets concentrated in those areas, but instead of protecting the social infrastructure, instead of protecting what good social infrastructure we might have created, we're now just bringing higher units. So a perfect example is we had an award, we have this award-winning community called South Falls Creek the False Creek community, like the way in which that community is created around there. And um, and it needs to increase in density. It needs to become um, more diverse. Yes, all of those things. But instead of taking that, that land away from all of those co-ops and those social housing and purpose-built rental and giving it to developers and hoping that we might get some, you know, a few good affordable housing out of it, instead of doing that, I mean, instead of talking to the people, we're doing that, or we seem to be doing that. And this is the problem, is that, okay, that, that area absorbed a lot of, of, um, of the density. Can't we look at other parts of our neighborhood? There are many, many solutions. I could just fire more and more housing solutions at you, because I think there are many. And I just think we're not a very creative community. Uh, we're either not in my backyard or more density. And, and there's not a lot of creative thinking there. But there are good people in the city. We've got good, good people in the city. <laughs> oh, then you might have answered the question that was forming in my head. I didn't want to lead you into trouble to get you to say something that is going to come back to bite you. But I kind of wonder um, what you think about how cynical a decision-making is in some of those situations. Like, I don't know. I tend to be cynical by nature, so I, I think that the decisions are, but I don't know that. Do you have any feel for that? Is it? I think it's just, too easy to say yeah. cynical decision-making. Okay. I mean, I, I certainly don't think, I see what's going on in Burnaby, and oh my God, they're working hard. Yeah. I see what's going on in New West, they're working hard. I can I can find examples throughout Vancouver. There, there are things that the city of Vancouver has done well. Like I can go back historically and go, oh my God. That was innovative. That was, 
enlightened. And I can probably find every decade, I can find, it doesn't matter which political party was in power, I can find really enlightened decisions that were made. So I definitely think it's possible. I actually think we give our politicians a really hard time. I, I yeah. don't wish that lifestyle on anyone. Yeah. And I don't think we give our civil servants enough credit for the work that they do. Um, I think we're really quick to criticize because it's easy. They're, they're in the public arena. We can throw darts. Yeah. Um, but it takes us off the hook and we don't have to do anything. So, PJ, I, I think in future you just need to change your behavior from now on. <laughs> to what? <laughs> like, I'm, less, I'm get, suddenly become a better person? That seems less, That's exactly it. Less, <laughs> less cynical, yes. Yeah. No, but I mean, I, I agree with you about all of that. I do think we give them short shrift. And I think, I was thinking this, something RJ would say would be one negative event overrides nine positive events. And so if you have a, a decision or a politician that does one crappy thing, the other nine things they did that were enlightened and forward thinking get forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think that does happen. I think, again, yeah. I think that has happened with regard to COVID administration in this province, like a whole bunch of things, right. But something do it doesn't go right. And all of a sudden, yeah, they're just take fire like all the time. I think they're doing, I'll be really honest. I think they're doing a damn fine job. I, do, I, do too. <laughs> I, I think it's, I, I look at the decisions that they get faced with every single day and I go, what would I do if I was in yeah. that position? Yeah, that what is... would I do? And you know, I, I think personally, I, I think I've got a bit of a, a girl crush on Dr. Bonnie Henry in terms of, well, because oh, she's just maintained. I don't know how they do it. I Every day she's looking and now, oh my God, now, you know, she, know, she, she finally gets to the stage where she's saying, okay, we can take a step forward. And then now she's looking at exponential growth of, you know, one variant. And we're seeing young people hitting the hospitals and now all of her greatest fears of, you know, not having enough capacity in hospitals coming to fruition. I think a lot of us have been asking, why aren't we just getting regulations? And this will come to you, Kevin, because you know what this happens. And if you follow U.S. politics, she was trying to train us from day one of making us change our behavior, wash our hands, social distancing, masking, doing that as a volunteer, like that, that teaching us, what it means to be a responsible citizen in our community. Because if she had come out and said, you must do this, guess what would have happened in our society mm-hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. It would have been a full on, you know, you want to see the anti-maskers come out? Yeah. yeah. Tell them they have to do something. Whoosh, yeah. yeah. Right. And that would have been a growing movement. And all of a sudden now, instead of dealing with health and updates, you're dealing with this extremely polarized debate right now it is there is polarization there but it's not nearly as bad as it could be so i'm i'm i i give credit to what's going on i, I i'm not as as same same i in conversations with friends my remarks are usually i think they're doing okay but what i really think is thank god i'm not the guy who has to do that because yeah and yes you do hear those calls for very simple solutions and i really don't think there are any and i think the experience in the jurisdictions across Canada proves it. We must have half a dozen different approaches, all of which have strengths and weaknesses. You know, I, I, I know as a news consumer and a, a, a citizen that you're, you're always, 
you're seeing something that's going on and you think it through and in about 10 seconds you go, well, they really should be doing this. And, you know, when you're in a position of, of policy, you don't do that. You don't keep changing to what, okay, judging from what I read today in the news, what they need to be is, so I think they do tend to lag a little bit behind. Like when you're thinking ahead, you're going, okay, we see it's happening to young people now. We're doing an age-based thing where the people that now who are now at least risk are getting the vaccinations and the people who are at most risk of causing the spread are not getting vaccinations. But you know that they're actually going through that thought process right now. It's just that they can't just release it. Oh, okay, today, oh, okay, I'm just going to do that because they're not sitting at home around the dinner table. <laughs> they're thinking about how do you pull this off? But I expect in the next week or so, we're going to see a change to the vaccination strategy. They have to be responsive to the 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 changes in the, the new variant. Yeah, and, I, and you can expect that they've been looking at it for weeks. Like that's, that's the thing is they're trying to be, they're trying to be governed by science-based evidenced information. And I think that we need to need to give our elected officials a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, Here's a question. Um, Still on the COVID, but um, what do you think, is there political correctness involved when Dr. Bonnie doesn't single out like say Christian groups and say, okay, Christians, Easter is a coming and you guys like to get together in Easter and we're speaking to you directly Christian group is that this is a um, not a good time. And you say the same thing for Chinese New Year and you say it to the Chinese community and you say it for Diwali or Holi or whatever, like all those, it, it, is it too politically correct for the government to to actually do that to single those things out what do you think i would say that there are many strategies of communicating with different groups and some of the worst strategies are doing that through the public media that you can engage in conversations and dialogue and develop and ways of moving forward with communities that doesn't that doesn't necessarily have to be done through sound bites And I believe, and I think I know, that they have been engaged in a thorough, important conversation with each one of the faith communities in this this province about how they show up with their parishioners or their congregations or their their followers. And I give a lot of credit that, that they've put the kind of time and energy into that. And of course, there may be people that don't follow everything, but I I actually think the problem is, is when we try and, and do this through sound bites. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So choosing, choosing the appropriate strategy for, for the group, like who do you communicate and how? And sustained conversation. It's not a one-off. It's not a one-off because the rates are going up. It is a sustained conversation. It's going on all the time like we don't see all of the conversations they're having and they are having many 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 so i think part of the reason you're not seeing this issue played out right now kevin is because of those conversations uh there's more to be said about what we're not hearing than i think what we're hearing yes 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 you're right and also i'm also a 
you know, I've been uh, distracted by south of the border, and I'm not paying attention to even local issues, although more now. I want to talk about the downtown east side. Things are going on, it seems. They're pushing people out of certain places, and uh, in more than just Vancouver, it seems to me, too. And I'm just... Uh, give us your views on what, what should happen there, Shauna. No easy answer there. But mm-hmm. um, So, number one for me is we got to stop calling this an opioid crisis and, and make it what it is, which is an opioid poisoning crisis. It's the poisoning of the drug supply. And if it was our water or our food, we would be acting so damn quickly. And so we need to deal with supply, which is happening. I was really glad to see through COVID that finally we started to see some issues around that. I am so impressed to see some of the the, the work that the overdose prevention site, people like Sarah Bly, they, they're now starting to see some headway in, in facilities and spaces. That's good. I think that there is uh, far more work that needs to go into the homelessness strategy. It's it's doing well. I actually think that the work that went into creating the housing, the temporary housing spaces has been good, really good. Keep it going. I'm really concerned about the exhaustion of frontline workers. God, what they do day in, day out, day in, day out. And I don't think that we have provided enough support and care for them. So much funding in in our country is very administrative heavy, which is really hard on groups like that. And I and, and I don't think we need to do that. And, and I'm really glad to see the philanthropic community try and address that. The downtown Eastside emergency response, that was two guys getting together and saying, what can we do? we got to provide support. So they created this thing called the COVID downtown emergency response. That was incredible. Uh, so th- it's those kinds of initiatives. For me, always, it's what do the residents of that community want for themselves and be guided by that? What do they want? What do they need? So much of what we do is we think we know what they want. We come in and we go get funding. Uh, you know, a friend of mine who worked there for many years says there's a little bit of the um, the poverty industry there, and so I want to always ask what do the commu- what does the community want? Are we talking in a way that their voices get to be heard and they get to shape the future? And I don't see that, but maybe it's happening. And, and is there um, like is the does, it, does the city step up? Does the province step up? Does the federal government get their nose in there? How do you see all that work? So remember the Vancouver Agreement? It was a, the first tripartite. It was the city of Vancouver, the province, and the feds all coming together and putting money in together. Um, and I think that it worked in some ways. There are really, really good people working in that community that know what they need and want. We need to listen to them. And yes, it's the federal government. And the federal government is just, I don't think has brought nearly enough money and support to the table around any poverty or housing. I just think that I don't know where they are in those issues. Um, I think the provincial government's finally stepping up in a big way in, in the last few years. I think the city of Vancouver over the years has done a great deal of work in this regard and making facilities available expediting development for purpose-built rental. I think Van City 
and credit unions have done great. First United has done really good work there. And so I think that that all of the, the basics are there, but we also need to stop creating a sacrifice zone of the downtown east side or or creating the kind of conditions that move people out uh, without the proper supports. I have a family member who if who 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 has a health a mental health issue and it went straight from VGH and he would get dumped into the downtown east side. He had no relationship to the downtown east side. Uh. The vulnerability that happens if you have a mental health issue getting dumped in that neighborhood. Now, this was a number of years ago, thankfully. I don't know if that's the case still, but it, I, it scares the hell out of me what vulnerable people go through. I, I really noticed the Winnebago's parked around the Home Depot's and over here on Slocana. And that also has to do with livability in the region, right? And just if people are getting uh, rent evicted or just their rents are going up, and all of a sudden, you know, they're losing their job because of COVID, I got to think that that's going to increase the numbers of homelessness. It is. And the precariousness of people and the desperation that emerges from that. It was really interesting in that first week that COVID, we went into lockdown in March of last year, not this last March, but the one before that, there was a real effort by a small community of people who looked at that first potential stimulus package and knew that it was going to be like every other stimulus package, which was for the banks. Let's make sure the banks are okay, stabilize, and or big, you know, it, it will. Tr- and they worked so hard. This group of people went, no, the most important thing is vicarious employees, the most vicarious in our communities. They are the most important. And they pushed hard and to the credit of that government, the federal government, the first stimulus package was for precarious employees. Then they, the second wave was, we've got to protect our main streets. We've got to protect these small businesses, often led by immigrants, you know, really small businesses that are serving our communities. We've got to support them. Then I don't think we went nearly far enough, but then you saw you started to see stimulus. I don't think that we're seeing that strategic orientation anymore to really looking at the most precarious in our community. I'm really worried about young people right now and what they face. They're at the loss of education and they're bearing they're bearing the front line of this of this uh, pandemic. I'm really worried about the people that have kind of run out of the serve money and have nowhere to go and there's no housing for them. Okay. So those are two groups right there. And then seniors are seniors were doing better on, but there, I would say that would be really, I would be focusing my energies and efforts at a policy level, looking at, okay, what do I need to do there? Cause it's a, we're into that next level. And yes, we, we did that at the beginning, but we got to revisit it now. And and I think they can. I, I have watched these governments pivot. You got it wrong this time. Try this. Okay, they're trying it. And I think they can keep doing that. I mean, I get scared about what happens. We're, we're putting, you know, we're shoveling out money. What happens next? But we have to. We have to. It's just the nature of what's going on. I don't think that we have a choice and governments don't have a choice. The economists are... Economists right now are a little mystified as to why there's no big inflation after all the stimulus, both here and in the States. 
and I'm sickened by the price house, housing prices. Amidst mm. the biggest pandemic, we are facing one of the biggest hikes in housing prices. Yeah, yeah. I just meant from a point of view of stimulus, you would have expected to have a high, you know, consumer price index increase every year because of all the stimulus. Yeah. But, yeah. but you're, yeah, you're right. The housing just keeps going up no matter what they do. It seemed at first that the uh, the uh, vacancy taxes were were having an impact, and perhaps yeah. they did. But it it's just kind of okay. That's done now, and now they're going up again. Yeah, yeah. It defies logic in Vancouver. Now, having said that, I still think there are solutions. You've got uh, faith communities that have large, large swaths of land. You have the city with a lot of land. And I think if we started to look at creative partnerships, we could say, okay, so there's a United Church doesn't have many people anymore. Here's a piece of land. What can be done to create a place, seniors housing, child daycare, um, affordable housing, while still retaining the place of worship for the United Church in this space. Mm-hmm. They're one of the first communities to try to look at that. I was really excited to hear in Burnaby that the BCGEU has gotten into creating affordable housing. Can you imagine if we started to look at unions and others creating housing authorities for workers, first responders? Like these are the creative ideas that have worked in other places. Why couldn't they work here? And we have from a financing, we've got really creative lenders like Van City and other credit unions that can play a really important role in supporting. And we've got a co-op sector, finally, that started to collaborate a lot more, and they actually have capital to invest. So we have some potential solutions, I think. I don't usually get to talk about this because I'm at the center, but I'm very much speaking on my own accord here. I'm not speaking on behalf of my employer. So do you um, run again next election? No? No, I don't run again. Um, I think we need a female to run. I I definitely want to see a woman candidate in this next election. Any of the names I'm seeing don't get me excited. So I want a woman. I can't believe that what we're up to, what, 140 years and we still have yet to have a woman. Uh, But I do want a woman. I'm not going to run because I actually feel where my skill base is best used is in doing what I'm doing. And we're having a lot of impact. And I'm not sure I would have that impact. Uh, Excellent. Um, um, I, I had in this in my head that when we um, interviewed Mumalak and Bo and Ma, that uh, I mean we sort of through the the whole Trump thing and the even the Trudeau thing is that the world needs um, better leaders <laughs> or actually leaders who are who are a little bit di- who, are, who are not who are not politicians. They're they're more leaders and and uh, like I kind of throw you into that category, but. If you're not going to be that kind of, um, no, I won't say that. Give us your advice to perhaps young women. I don't know that mm. it has to be women. but No, I'm going to actually ask you to say young women because there's specific advice to give to them. It's well, then, hard to run as a woman. Yeah. So then, I swear if I had to go through one more day of hearing what my hair looked like and what I was wearing from really good, well-intentioned people every day. Every single day, wow! I would, I mean, people would. I remember one woman coming and had delivering me a binder. She had done all this research on how I should wear my hair, what I should work. And I remember another woman who was very senior came up after I'd given a speech, and I'm encircled with a group of people, and she comes up, 
And we're talking, she says, next time we're going to have you in plum. Oh, geez. <laughs> this was day in, day out, like oh, day yeah. in. And that's nothing. Like, I mean, God, I've worked in, in largely male dominated fields for most of my life. So I can cope with that. And I was raised in the Catholic church. So I know misogyny, excuse me to all my Catholic <laughs> friends and family, but it was a misogynist institute on many levels. But I, I think that women go through something very different. So what I would say to young women is there's a few different things that, that there is, this is a um, well-oiled machine and yeah. how you get elected. Do not go into this naively. I went into it naively. There are, there is a science to getting elected. There are things that you must do. You must have one heck of a list um, of potential voters. You've got to have it. You've got to have people you can mobilize. You need to have that. You need to understand it. You need to have um, money that you can access. Now, you're going to have to get that in $1,200 increments or less because that's the rules and those are good rules. Mm. I'm glad about that. Yeah, and, and you've got to have really, really recognize that you are going to be working harder than you've ever worked in your life. You will be up in the morning and you will be gaining access to a part of our city you will never have a chance to see in the way before. And it's beautiful. That's the part about running is you get to see parts of our city. I, I've been here most of my life. I went, graduated from high school at 11th in Quebec. I know the city never saw big parts of it before. And you get to see that when you're running, you get to hear, you get to show up and be with people with them and how they are. That's a privilege. And I really believe that. Uh, so you gotta, you gotta get yourself prepared for that. Be ready for that. Be ready to put in those hours, um, have really good people you trust because everybody wants to be your friend. If you think you're going to be so successful and then they want something from you, you gotta really be clean in terms of who you are and why you're doing this. You have, a, have to have a really good reason for running other than getting elected because you might not get elected. And you gotta, have, you gotta really know who you are in relationship to that because it's hard. I would say for young women, uh, really, pra- really be really clear on if you don't know the issues, how are you gonna learn and how are you going to gain perspectives from people in the city about what the solutions are? And if you're just going to run on anecdotes and you're just going to run on stories, on emotion, don't run. Don't bother. Mm. We've got enough of that. See, but I think so much of that advice would be well taken by anybody. Yeah. But those are the kinds of people, in fact, speaking for myself, that I want to see as my leaders, as my – that's why we interviewed Mumalak and that's why we interviewed Bo and Ma. Because <laughs> first, because they'd come on <laughs> – and also because of that kind of person. They are people first and politicians second, and they are oriented towards their constituents and what's needed in their communities and how to make that happen. And so much of what we seem to see at all levels of government lacks that. Yeah. There's people who run on anecdote. Let's make Canada great again. You know, Let's take Canada back. Well, f- from who there, Aaron? Who's, who's got it now that we got to take it back from? I think that advice should be listened to by everybody who's going to run anywhere, really. Yeah, and, and I'm going to tie into something Kevin said. I have spent a lot of time trying to understand small community appeal that uh, Trump had. 
Like I've really been trying to understand why has he been so popular? And there's a lesson to learn from Trump. I don't like to acknowledge that because there's so much I find hideous about that. Here's the lesson the left can learn. That in a community, he says, you matter. You matter. Whoever you are, you matter. And he doesn't tell you you have to change. Yeah, he you doesn't matter. tell you you're stupid either. No. And, and it's really interesting because you try and figure out why would a Latino small business person align themselves with Trump? What has he ever done for them? And then you hear and you go, he matters. I mean, he says to a lot, of, there's a lot of contradictions in what he says. For, I don't want you to get for any impression in what I'm saying that I am a supporter of Trump or anything like that. I am not. But I've been really trying to analyze how did he get 73 million votes more than that? And so we were in Eastern Washington the, the week before the election, and we were staying in small town, Eastern Washington, and it was all Confederate signs, Trump. You didn't see a Democrat sign anywhere, nothing, nothing. And I just kept going, that's when I got really scared. I thought he's going to win. Holy shit, he's going to win. I can't believe this. he could win. Like, how is that conceivable? And I started to get into conversations. We just get into conversations with people. And, you know, there was no one reaching out to these communities on the issues they cared about. And I'm going, yeah, but food security is huge. Why isn't there somebody talking to these guys about farming? Yeah. Why isn't, you know, just, it wasn't there. It's like, we, we said it's okay. to. And so this is the reason I'm bringing this up because I see it in Canadian politics. Yeah. We have gotten so tribal. We focus in on the, the party. We focus in on, you know, the sports team. We treat it like kind of like a sports team. And that's where we put our time and energy. And we keep saying, and I was told this, you don't need to talk to them. You don't need to talk to them. You don't need to talk to them. You focus on your base. You focus here. And we've lost the ability to understand that we're talking about people in communities and people matter, whoever they are, whatever their values are, they matter. And we need to understand each other better. And that's where I get a little exercised about where we're heading in Canada around the greater polarization through partisan politics. Glad we got to here because when you mentioned the study of democracy earlier, I was going to ask you, what is your opinion about the health of democracy in Canada these days? And that's what we're hearing right now. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because I actually think I'm really grateful I live in Canada. I've lived in too many countries that are not democratic. I do not want that future. That's why, we'll, that's why it is my life exercise to protect it. However, democracy is not serving our democracy is not serving our community, and we are in the most critical historical period of my life. My day-to-day -day efforts are being spent trying to address people who finally feel like they have this moment where there's a voice and they can talk about Black oppression. They can talk about racial equity and justice. They can talk about decolonization and indigenization because the system is not serving them and it needs to change. And this is the moment we're in. I feel like this is one of the most powerful moments in our history and how we enable a different kind of transition is really critical. I'm a white woman of privilege. I cannot possibly understand what a 
what a woman with lived experience who has to face racism day after day after day. And I can tell you, there's a lot of people on staff and the people I talk to that, but I got a lot to learn on that. Like I really do. And it means I have to work differently. I need to ask different questions, create different spaces. Um, but that's, that's what this next, that's what the next 10 years is going to be. It's a transition. I do hope a transition is underway because I think transition is going to happen one way or another. Transition. I think what's really interesting federally is seeing how many different people across all the political parties uh, are, are changing things. Like I'm always interested. You can look at the leaders, but I'm really interested in who are the people meeting, you know, Senator Omidvar meeting across the political spectrum to try and ensure that there's greater diversity on boards, of, you know, across the country. Like they, there's all this really interesting work that goes on by people who care yeah. and who use their positions uh, to try and advance change. And that's, that gives me hope. That gives me a lot of hope. You know, the bone maws give me hope. Uh, Christine Boyle, there's lots of people. Jennifer Reddy. I, I mean, I look around and I go, there's some pretty amazing people out there um, that give me hope. We are definitely not lost. We are. Yeah. And with Joe Biden now, what a difference, eh? Huge. There's competence. Yeah. <laughs> and so growing up in Nelson, did you end up going up Kokanee Glacier from time to time? I have been up Kokanee Glacier as a an adult, but um, I was too young. We left Nelson. My dad was at Notre Dame. And then he put all five of us with the dog into the car, this trailer. And, and we headed to this really glorious period in our lives where we lived for seven years on a TA salary, a tutorial assistant salary as he went, he was one of the charter students up at SFU doing his PhD. And um, we lived in my mother used to, cause she was a great cook. She would make roast beefs on Sunday and things. But during this period, we had no money. So she used to take bologna and put, and put rope around it to make it look like roast beef and serve it up on a Sunday. <laughs> yeah, those were not our most affluent days, I have to say. So we, we lived in Mayalville. We lived in Laval Square. Um, and that's where I sort of early elementary school and then moved to New West. And, and dad got a job at the very first Vancouver Community College when it was created, which is just across uh, from City Hall, was there. Yeah. Because I went to um, Washington State uh -huh. in uh, uh, 77, 78. And my mom kept saying, um, Kevin, you know, um, Jerry Sylvester is the dean at Langara. And apparently Langara has one of the best theater programs in the country. And I said, Mom, that's a community college. I am university material. And I don't think I'll be doing that. And then uh, WSU got a little bit too expensive, and the rest is history, as they say. Did you go to Studio 58? Did I ever? So did my daughter. It's a damn good program. Yeah. She he went. The dean of Instruction. He helped to start that in the yeah. Indigenous Studies program there. Um, yeah. My daughter Lucy went 34 years after I did and had five of the same teachers. Is that right? Okay, that. <laughs> 34 wow. years later. No comment on that one. Wow. Well, they were obviously very young when I was there. <laughs> the, the, the program has been very successful, so I, I assume that has something to do with those, those five teachers, if not more. Yeah. When did the Kootenays get so cool, though? Like, 
it is so cool now. Like you cannot get a place in Nelson that you're rivaling prices in Vancouver to buy a place in Nelson. I went to try and find something because it's my dream to get back, but it's become like, it's be a little bit like Portlandia. It's where young people go to retire. Like when did that happen? Well, maybe it's when all the people who came from there started looking to retire. Just want to go back. Do you guys want to go back to your hometowns? Rosalind? I don't. I'm sorry to say that, Rosalind, but probably not. Uh, if I was going to go back, it would have been when I was a lot younger, um, probably, because I don't know about anybody else, but I feel too old to face snow shoveling. I was going to say, Red Mountain's not calling you. Right? <laughs> not really. I still ski, but I mean, I just, yeah, no. You guys, you guys think about going back there? Well, for me, with um, Sue's born and raised here, and uh, and has absolutely no interest in ever living in a small town. So, you know, as a couple, there's absolutely no way. I mean, I could see if if it was just myself, sure, I could consider retiring there in part because the housing differential as well, you know, like it's kind of sell here and buy there. And I think that has a lot to do with why so many people, I think it started in late 90s, maybe early 2000s. The big migration people would have a nice, young people would have a nice business here. By young, I mean 30, 35 years old. And then they'd go, okay, well, how about we start a new business out there? Or how about I go to work in some kind of artistic endeavor or whatever? And it seemed to work really well for people. But I I have read that housing prices are really pushing upwards outside of the cities now. Is that? Oh, it's huge. We went, so you would, you couldn't in Nelson last summer during COVID, if you went to put an offer on a place, there would be 10 other people putting an offer. If something was listed, it meant that it wasn't available because if it, by the time it was listed, it was gone. And, and that's, it's still going on. So yeah. COVID's had a big impact on Albertans coming into the Kootenays and a big impact on people moving into um, more rural communities. So right across the province, almost every rural community is seeing an, an increase. In- so that's basically then if you've got a housing problem at the coast or in the big urban centers, it's driven prices out of control, Mm. COVID has extended that to rural communities, right? Much more so, actually. They've seen much higher price increases than that. Do I understand what you're saying, right, is that some people are going, I got to get out of the city, it's not safe here? Yep. Wow. That's exactly what's happened. I also think COVID's created a bit of an existential question Mm. for each of us, right? What kind of life do I want? Yeah. Mm. Uh, what you know if i can't work in the way and i can't be in my community what kind of life do i I know it has for me fundamentally right now who am i and what do i want to be and what do i want to do and how do i want to show up given this situation because it's not it's not ending really fast i don't think it is i think we're going into epidemic now i think it'll be like we'll go through waves and and you know go but I think you're right. And I, I do think that whole thing has come up. People have changed the way they work. And for a lot of people, they've discovered that they actually prefer a different way of working. And now they're looking for ways to express that, that don't involve a house in a very expensive part of the province. You know, The sad part is a lot of the downside aspects of, of life at the coast follow you out to those places. Like housing prices go up, people start to hold out for higher prices. And now the locals who've based their whole lives and their 
job choices and everything else on cost of living as it was, they're experiencing the same consequences as guys down here being forced out of yeah. low income, so-called low income parts of the same things are happening in rural communities. They can't live where they grew up anymore. It's always been my dream to get back to Nelson. That's always been my dream. It's always, I always, I said to my husband, you know, if we're going to get married. You got to buy into the idea that I will eventually get back to Nelson. And my sister lives there. And now I have nieces and they have kids. And so there's yeah. a real pull. That would but, make a big difference. If, if I had, I have just my brother living in Balfour and my old friends from the old days. And that's kind of it. My family, my kids, friends, they're all here. Kevin, I have a question for you as an actor. How's this period been for you? Awful. And you can sort of, you know, you see pictures of the empty theaters and the full airplanes and, and the theater community scratches their heads. Like, why couldn't we do social distancing inside a theater, you know? And anyway, they just didn't. And I don't know when it's going to... Yeah. There's a lot of people who are very keen on these Zoom readings and it just isn't the same you can't even if it's a new piece of theater you can't watch it on zoom and you know you can sort of but i just find it anyway but i did two days ago i just got rebooked for something that i lost because of covid so i'm on stage january 4th at the belfry in victoria in 2022 (laughs) and what what are you going to be doing what's the piece the little red warrior and his lawyer Written by Kevin Loring, who just took over the uh, Indigenous Theatre at the National Arts Centre. So he's going to come and direct it. Fantastic. I mean, I'm not even sure about January, to be quite honest. Yeah. I don't know what these uh, variants are going to do to the world. And then hold out that the vaccinations keep them at bay so yeah yeah or they they get little boosters that come along rather quickly or whatever Mm -hmm. but uh i'm kind of amazed at the um film industry in vancouver seemed to do it i worked on a big production puddin i think it's called puddin it's a musical a six episode musical uh, produced by saturday night live people the BC government said that they could have the tests and everything, but the BC government just wasn't quick enough. So they hired a company in Seattle or someplace, and this company came up and does all the testing. Like this was in last in the fall. Yeah, and you had to be tested like three times a week, right? Oh yes, 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 yeah, three yes. times a week, and then one once. Yeah, a two week, uh, two, uh, kind of every two days for. Uh, uh, cast members and stuff and they're very you know there's zones you you know if you're not cast or had all these tests you can't go into this zone you just don't go in there and everybody's in masks and shields and all so i I thought they managed it really well but i'm not i'm really wondering it's got quite quiet in the last if someone has to shut down they shut down and everybody knows about it. So I don't know if they're being cautious or, but I think they did a really good job of it is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think one of the things that's been fascinating is watching how artists have responded in this period. I'm, I think it's, if, if there's anything I've gained an appreciation for is how critical the arts community is and funding for the arts, because, you know, when this is going on, who's everybody looking to for, ideas, inspiration, leadership, whatever it is. It's it's fascinating how much it's artists in our community and the creativity I've seen, but, oh, it's hurting. Like yeah. Most of my friends that are working, if they get work. We had a, one nice thing happen. My brother had his 60th 
and Stephen Fearing did a private concert oh, wow. online and it was just so well done. It was like, it was the incredible, it was so intimate and storytelling and everything. So where that's possible and you can pay artists to do that, I think it does work. Yeah. Like that was the most intimate experience. I mean, I felt like you know, we were all in the same room. Yeah. I think music's different on Easter Sunday as a matter of fact, right at the top of our street, um, two companies, New World and Chop, got must have got some sort of grant together. And these four youngsters, singers, musicians who are in their own bubble, they go around. Uh, you have to sort of sign up for this. For uh, uh, and this is somebody who has dementia and but would perk up with music. And so somebody had just, they applied for it and they got it. And the, the concert is like 15 minutes long in front of the house. Um, everybody around is in mass. Like there's only like eight people in the audience, I think, spread around. And the woman was inside in bed with the window open so she could hear it. Everybody's taking care of it. And I just wept. Yeah. Just because... Like it was a story mixed with a song about springtime and oh my God, it was so beautiful. Yeah. And just the fact that we're not getting touched by that, that sort of that real connection of live performance, right? Because you do get, you you, you make a connection. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. If you deal with isolation in a community, if you deal with community and you build relationships and you create those bonds you create resilience in a city and you create the capacity to bounce back from these issues. And I think we just need to be looking at all the ways we can do that. I want to say, and I want to defend some of the people in politics. I see them doing really good work. I see some of them. Absolutely. I see some of them, but I just see them working, going at it day after day and just, you know, coming back at it. I have such respect for the mayor in New West, Jonathan Cote. That guy is amazing. Take a look at his Twitter feed. Take a look at the energy with he and his council put in and the staff around building community, talking to people, just building a sense that uh, we're, we're in this together. Uh, mayor Hurley, um, Mayor Buchanan in North Van, just you know, constantly trying to say, how do we step? She's a nurse. So she wasn't, when it all happened, she stepped in as a nurse would step in and said, how do I care? She was working seven days a week. How do I care for this community? How do I create resilience? How do I support the the community in, in, in responding here? Um, how do I assert what we need right now? So I actually think there's some really good people out there that deserve to have some spotlight on them. And we, you know, we don't do that enough. Well, I agree, but I think that we just don't look for it. Like when it's presented, like you present it, we don't. We're not looking for community-based whatevers, and you know, just people who inspire us and you hear new ideas. We don't look for that as easy as we get bad news about whatever, right? And yeah. you know, whether it's politicians or the world in general, uh, this has just been really inspiring. Yeah, I gotta say, sure, fantastic. There's so many good things going on. I think every day I, I couldn't keep track of it all. So good news stuff. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's hard to hear good news. And I'm interested as to whether that's because it's in the news 
newspapers and the media's interest to to provide the outrage? Or is it our own human nature where we look for outrage for that little burst? Are we following people on Twitter that are uplifting or talking about the good things that are happening? Are we are we hanging out in circles that talk about how brutally bad everything is? You know what? I think that the polarization and all the algorithms that are taking us further and further into extremes are having an incredible impact. I I know, like I have been conscious from the day I learned about those algorithms on Facebook and others to see if they could have an impact on my feeds. And I remember ages ago, they said, oh, you'll you'll vote a certain way. And I thought, well, that's unlikely. But sure enough, I watched all of my algorithms take me to certain spaces. And so all of a sudden I've watched my own attitudes go in an, in a more, not an extreme direction, but more, more in a, in a place I didn't expect them to go just because the algorithms take me to more and more and more tailored um, information. And that's what I'm getting. So unless I make some really outrageous effort, to open myself up to new information. I'm lucky because I have to do that in my job. I must right. be open. Yeah. But, you know, I'm what 0.0001% of the population, right? The rest of us, we're being taken to further extremes. So yeah. I don't blame people for the anxiety, the mental health, the, the constant focus on cynicism and negativity because that's where so much of our information is taking us it's curated in that way but and and that's why i think that you know it's just you guys sitting around talking is a really good thing people sitting around and talking having conversations you know playing the guitar together going on bike rides together going for walks getting out of these curated spaces Mm. and i mean we are in a curated space right now but we've been all over the place so it's not that curated um (laughs) uh, but that's, I, I just watched a fascinating, I'm trying to understand why every, why I'm dealing with so many young people that seem to have very little resilience. Somebody says something and they interpret it as deep harm because they've been misgendered or something. Okay, misgendering is important. You got to understand that. But is it deep harm? Well, I can't really judge that because I don't know that person's lived mm. experience. But that seems to be so much of what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And I just don't see that resilience. And I keep wondering how much have we created a culture that doesn't create that resilience anymore? Mm, very interesting. Well, and that's a really important question too, because when everything is a gigantic potential offense or crisis, generally people fatigue out. They become tired of everyone having a crisis and they begin to have a shutdown reaction. Yeah. So you get the pendulum swinging that way. Meanwhile, you've got the person that, and then I'll just speak from my own experience of coming up and growing up in a world where the male dominated world I grew up with, just constant, 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 constant. And so that you start to say, I don't even want to hear apologies anymore. I don't even want to hear that. I just, I just want to talk to women now, or I just want to talk. And, and, and I just want to, I just don't want to even deal with, I don't want to deal with men anymore. I mean, I've gone through that. I've gone through that process in my life where I just go separation. I don't want anything to do with that. Cut myself off. So 
you've got lots of these things happening and then cancel culture coming into all of this. It's a really complicated time. And so I think the idea of going for walks, going on, <laughs> playing music together, you know, reading poetry together, phoning that poetry line, whatever it is that we do, that's a little less in our boxes and in yeah, our chambers. Is a kind of like simple solutions. They're not simplistic, but they're, they're simple solutions. Just establishing connections with the people around you. Yeah. Who would have thought I would yeah, end on that note? <laughs> anyway. uh, excellent. Thank you so much, Shauna. Kevin, thank you. It's great to see you again. It's so lovely to meet the two of you as well. Yeah, what a pleasure. And, thank uh, you. Enjoy the, the shed dogs and the... Um, oh. Say say hi to your family. I sure will. Uh, I don't know if they remember me, but we, we have to remember you. I mean, you don't have to know us, but my okay. dad made sure that we had to remember. Okay. Thanks okay, so much. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.